along in your bulletins as we hear the message from the gospel. Lesson from the Gospel, Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. Please stand for the lesson of the Gospels. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is, um, that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. He began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. But no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have enough, have more than enough bread? But I will perish here with hunger. But I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He arose and came to his father. When he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And, but the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead, and he is alive again. He was lost, and now he is found. And they begin to celebrate. Now the older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called to one of the servants and asked what those things meant. And he said to them, Your brother has come. Come, and your father has killed the fattened cow because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go, and his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your commandment, command, yet you give me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when your when the son of yours come, came, who has devoured your property with predestines, you killed the fat and calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was, fitting, it was fighting to celebrate and to be glad. Your brother was dead, and he is alive. He was lost, and he is found. The word of the Lord. Join me in prayer as we open. God, our Father, we pray that as we open up your word today together, that you would teach us, and that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts 
would be pleasing and glorifying to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, now we open every sermon at this church with a special message to the kids. And so kids, I want to ask you, and grown-ups, I'm really asking you too, have you seen the Star Wars movies? I'm talking about the original Star Wars movies from the 70s and 80s. Have you seen, who's seen these movies? All right, now what happens at the very end? All three movies tell one story. What happens at the very end of The Return of the Jedi? There's one character who has been terrible, awful throughout all the movies, and he has to make a choice whether he's going to stay bad or turn back to the good side. Who is that character at the very end of the movie? Who knows? Darth Vader, the worst of the worst, but his son Luke believes there is still good in him, believes he can be turned back. And what does Darth Vader do at the very end after all the terrible things he's done? He turns back to the good side and he performs one act of of goodness and justice at the end of the movie. And then in the final scene, Darth Vader's spirit is with the spirit of the other departed Jedi. He, He goes to Jedi heaven. Having been the worst of the worst his, his, nearly his entire life, he's redeemed in that one moment. Now, theology from Star Wars is a little bit of a... That, that's a pitfall, and there's lots of, of directions you could go with that that we probably should, shouldn't go. But I want to stick with it for just, just a moment. Have you seen the most recent movies? The Ray movies, as we call them in my house. Who's, who's seen those? All right, all right. Those movies, in those movies, the redemption story, the story of the lost person who is sought after and is found and is redeemed is even more a central focus of the, the drama of the, the third trilogy of Star Wars movies. And this, in, in those movies, it's a, it's a son, not a father, who has fallen away and who must be redeemed. And the, the critics, the, the audience is loved the new Star Wars movies. The critics didn't like them. The, the, the critics said that the new Star Wars movies were just a rehash of the old Star Wars movies, and they panned them and said they're, they're not original. It's just a rehash, same plot, same themes. But people loved those movies. People loved that redemption story. We love a redemption story. I think even the movie critics must love a redemption story. And why do we love a redemption story? You know, a a literary critic might give you one answer. An anthropologist might give you a different answer. And those would be interesting answers. But I think ultimately the reason that we love a redemption story is because God loves a redemption story. And we are made in his image. And we're going to look today at the story of our redemption as God's lost children. The story of his great and unconditional and unchanging redemptive love for us. So let's, let's move on from Star Wars and move to a more reliable source of theology. The story of the prodigal son, one of the, which is printed in your bulletin, and I, I encourage you to follow along in your bulletin as we're, as we're talking about it, but it's one of the most beautiful and well-known stories in the Bible. Uh, many of the stories in the Bible are accounts of, of real events, and parables are by contrast, fictional stories that Jesus tells to, to teach a lesson. But it's, I have trouble calling the parable of the prodigal son fiction 
because it uses fictional characters to tell a story of God's redeeming love for us that is, in a, in a much deeper way, far truer than any, any factually true story that we could tell ourselves. So start briefly with the context in which Jesus is telling the parable. This is not printed in your bulletin, but as Luke chapter 15 opens, in verse 1, we see that the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him, that is, to Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And then verse 3, So he, Jesus, so he told them this parable. That word so indicates that the reason the parable is told is because it's in response to the grumbling of the Pharisees about Jesus uh, eating and associating with sinners and tax collectors. And the parable that Jesus tells in response to the Pharisees' grumbling is really three parables, of which the prodigal son is the third. And I'm going to read the first two. The first is verses 4 through 7, the parable of the lost sheep. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Next, Jesus tells the parable of the lost coin. Verses 8 through 10. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then verses 11 through 32 are the the parable of the prodigal son, which are printed for you in your bulletin. And the third parable contains the same message as the first two about the rejoicing in heaven over the return of a lost sinner, but it also contains so much more. There's so many different layers and levels of meaning, I think, to this story that have been explored throughout the history of the church and through hundreds and hundreds of books and sermons. And so I just want to invite you to read these words with me, go through the verses with me, reflect on them, and I want to offer a few reflections on them for your consideration. So like many of Jesus' parables, like most of Jesus' parables, this is an allegory where the, the characters in the parable stand for people in real life. And in the immediate context in which Jesus is telling the story, the younger son stands for the sinners and tax collectors, the older son stands for the grumbling Pharisees, and the father stands for God. And as I said, there are layers of meaning beyond that which we'll touch on, but that's the basic framework of the allegory. And in terms of where we fit into this, Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I think as we read these verses, we should first identify with the prodigal son and acknowledge our failing and the extent to which we have turned away from God the way he has. But there's also certainly a sense in which we as Christians, we as the church, should see ourselves in the older son and in the Pharisees. And we'll talk about that as well. So start with verse 11. 
And there was a man who had two sons. And the younger son, and, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. But right from the start, this is an unusual father. The son comes to him and demands his inheritance now before the father has died. The father would normally die and never have to deal with the inheritance. The son wants the inheritance now. And instead of saying what I think we would say to a child like this, are, are you kidding me? What are you talking about? You don't deserve this. This is this, maybe later. Uh, no. The father freely gives it to him. Gives him what he asks for, even knowing, I think, knowing that just by the fact that the son has asked so, so rashly and, and greedily for his inheritance early, the father must know that the son is highly unlikely to manage the inheritance well. But he gives it to him. And, and his, his giving of the inheritance has nothing at all to do with the son's being worthy of it or deserving of it, and it has nothing to do with whether or not the son ever repents and returns. We know the son will repent and return, but the father doesn't know that when he gives the inheritance away. And in this way, I, I think this element of the story makes me think of God's common grace for all humanity. Uh, the, the gifts that we enjoy, not because we are believers, not because we, we know God's word, but the gifts that all humanity enjoys because of God's goodness, family, friendship, love, material possessions, beauty, learning, all of these things are beautiful gifts from God that humanity enjoys uh, irrespective of, I mean, certainly we do not deserve them, but whether or not we ever repent and turn back to God, we, we enjoy these blessings. But like the prodigal son, what do we tend to do with these gifts when we enjoy them apart from God, when we take them as the prodigal son does to a faraway country, as far away from God as we can get to try to enjoy these gifts. Like the prodigal son, and, and as verse 13 tells us, we, we tend to squander them in reckless living apart from God. And then a famine comes, verse 14, and, the, and it says the younger son began to be in need. The gifts of common grace only go so far. But when the younger son realizes that he's in need, he doesn't go straight back to the father. We know that he could go straight back to the father. We've read the end of the story. We know the father would take him back gladly, joyfully. The father would throw a party right then and take his son back as soon as his son realizes that he's in need. But the son doesn't know that. The son tries to provide for himself. He stays in the land far away from his father. And he can't provide for himself well in the land far away from his father. And so what does he turn to? He turns to a job feeding pigs, eating with pigs, which in ancient Israel, I think would have been just about the lowest and most unclean job that you could possibly imagine. I think to draw a correct parallel for us to understand what this sounded like to the people listening to this story, we would need to think of uh, the most morally compromised pursuit that we can imagine. And that might be different depending on your imagination and your experience, but it it might be uh, a pornographer, a human trafficker. It might be going and joining a a neo-Nazi gang or something like that. Imagine the most shameful 
pursuit that would bring in our society the most ill repute upon a person and upon that person's family, that person's father. And that's, that's what I think this, the, the living with pigs and eating with pigs is intended to convey that kind of, of, of shame and that kind of uh, degradation, both, both morally and, and materially. At, at this point, which is the lowest point for the younger son, I want to focus on, a, on a, a disconnect, a juxtaposition between the son's perception at this point in the story of where he stands with the father and the reality of how the father sees him. And this gives us a beautiful image of how God sees us as his children, even in the depths of our sin and despair. You know, we're constantly told by the world around us that uh, we need to have high self-esteem. That, that, that's the key to happiness, is, is f- feeling worthy and thinking that you're worthy and having a high regard for yourself. But the way God sees us and the way God loves us that's really the reality. And that has nothing to do with our self-esteem. That has nothing to do with how we see ourselves. If any of us, if, if you were ever tempted to think that you were beyond God's grace and forgiveness, or to think that anybody else who you come across is beyond God's grace and forgiveness, then remember this juxtaposition from the parable of the prodigal son. On the one hand, we have the son's shameful feeling that he can never return to his father's side. And that shameful feeling is revealed as a misperception, a lie, a mist that fades away. And compare that lie to the truth, which is that at any moment, the father would unconditionally and joyfully throw a huge party for his son's return. When we feel loved, uh, unloved, when we feel unloved or unlovable, And we do. We all have these feelings. That feeling is an illusion. It's not real at all. It's a trick that our fallen minds play on us. The reality, the truth, that is set, was set before the foundation of the world and will remain forever, is God's unconditional love for us. So verse 18 When the son decides to return home, he wants to say three things to his father. I have sinned against heaven and before you. Yes, that is a true statement. He absolutely has. Then he says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. A true statement, perhaps, but was he ever worthy to be called a son of this father? His sinfulness is revealed from the very beginning of the story. His father didn't call him son because he was worthy. He called him son because that's what he was. And it's the same between us and God. God doesn't love us and cherish us and seek after us because we're worthy. He does it because we're his children. And we will always be his children and there is nothing we can do to change that. And finally, the son wants to say to his father, treat me as one of your hired servants. The son thinks, understandably, that because of the first two things, because I've sinned against you and I'm no longer worthy, the best I can hope for 
is that you would give me just enough so that I don't have to live with the pigs anymore. But of course, that's not how the father sees it at all. As the son returns to his father, Jesus includes a, a, what I think is an interesting detail, and I could be reading too much into it, but verse 20 says, while he, the son, was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And this fact that the father sees the son from a long way off, imagine if you're, this is a, an estate of a farm in ancient Israel. Imagine if you're busy going about your day on a farm in ancient Israel doing all the work that that entails. What are the chances that you would happen to see someone just as they came over the horizon? Seems, seems highly unlikely. I think the suggestion here is that the father has been watching the horizon. The father has been searching intently hoping for the return of his precious son. And the son doesn't even need to make it all the way home on his own. The father runs to close the distance between them as soon as he sees the son returning. So again, think about the difference between the son's perception of himself and how the father sees him. The son can't even imagine that the father could take him back because of what he's done. But the father can't imagine not taking him back, no matter what he's done. And in verses 21 and 22, the son tries to recite his apology to the father, which ends in the son's telling of it with, please please just treat me as your hired servant. And the son gets out the first two points, I've sinned against you and I'm not worthy. The father does not let him even say, treat me as your hired servant. The father tells the servants to throw a robe around him and throw a party for him. The father doesn't even, the the, the gap between the father's love for his son and the son's perception of his lovability is, is, uh, is so, so vast. And the father isn't just waiting passively, he's searching. He's running. He's looking for the son. And this, this is, is a connection, one of the connections between the first two parables that we read, and the, and the parable of the prodigal son, that the sheep doesn't find its way back on its own. The coin can't find itself. The shepherd has to search for the sheep. The sheep, the woman has to seek for the coin, and the father scans the horizon for his son and runs to greet him. Whenever a sinner repents and is found, Jesus says there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And so it is with the prodigal son. The fattened calf is killed and the father throws a great party for his son. And is this because the son is worthy? No, not at all. He's unworthy. Then why? Why does the father do this? He tells us, The answer is simple. Verse 24, For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. It's as simple as that. We are all lost in our sins without God's grace. And when one of us repents and returns to God, there is a joyful party in heaven. No matter what the sinner has done in the past. Praise God. Now this brings us to the older brother. The older brother is angry that the younger brother is being received this way, and he refuses to go into the party. And there's another interesting detail here. 
that Jesus includes. When the father who is inside the party realizes that the older brother is outside grumbling like the Pharisees, he extends the same grace and patience to the older brother that he has shown to the younger brother. What, what does he say? He, he's not, he doesn't chastise the older son. He doesn't, he doesn't badmouth him in front of the crowd. What does he say? His father comes out of the party. His father came out and entreated him. Verse, 40, verse, verse 28, his father pleads with him, comes out and pleads with him to do the right thing and to come and celebrate his brother's return. But he doesn't. The older brother doesn't respond that way. Instead, the older brother answers his father, verse 29, Look these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this young son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Now, if we were keeping score the way the world does, the older brother might have a point. Like the father seems happier about the younger brother's return than he is about the older brother's having never left. Two points about that. First, I think that this is a place in the story where we might be able to identify with the father a little bit and, and get a, a, just a glimpse of an image of the way that God loves us. As a parent, imagine having a child who is as deeply lost in sin as the prodigal son. Some of us may, may have experienced that. The greater the depths of your child's pain and anguish and sin, the more desperate you would be for their restoration. And the more joy and relief you would feel at their redemption. And this doesn't mean, and if, if you have another child who doesn't, who doesn't leave, who doesn't fall away, you, you don't love them less. But the feeling of joy and relief upon the redemption of the lost is, is different in kind from the feeling of, of gratitude for those who, who never leave. And second, the, the contrast, the idea that there's a contrast between people who perfectly obey God and stay with him always, like the older son claims to do, and then, and then the, the prodigal, that that's a contrast within humanity, is revealed to be uh, not the case. And I think it's revealed, it's revealed within the story that that's, that that's not the case. We're all prodigals, including the older son, including the Pharisees, and God's joy over our redemption is, is equal, uh, no matter our, the nature of our sins. But... It, it's interesting to me that the older brother, he says, he says to God, he says to the father, I've never disobeyed your commands. What has he just done? The, the, the father says, come celebrate. Come celebrate for your brother. Come to the party. And, and he says no. He, he literally he just disobeyed the most recent command that the father gave him. And then he turns to the father and says, I never disobey your commands. The older brother here, I think, stands not just for the, the Pharisees individually, who need God's grace as much as anybody, but he stands for God's people in general. Throughout the Old Testament, the Israelites are God's people. 
But it was God who was faithful to them all the time. It was not they who were faithful to God all the time. As soon as they were delivered from Egypt, they went into the desert and, and built the golden calf and strayed from God. The, the rest of the Old Testament is a story of God's people turning away from him, suffering the consequences, and then returning to him. The history of God's people is the history of the prodigal son, not the perfect obedience of the older brother. And the older brother shows us how easy it is for us as the church, as believers, to be blinded to our own sin. To think that because we profess faith and seek in many ways to live godly lives, that we are less in need of repentance or of God's grace. To view ourselves as morally superior to the most wretched sinner, like the prodigal son, we are not. And as Christians, we need God's grace just as much as the worst sinner who ever lived. And we should rejoice with the angels at the redemption of anyone who turns to God, no matter what they've done. As Christians, even as God is making us into new creations by his grace, there are times when we squander God's blessings like the prodigal son, and there are times when, like the older son, we look down our noses and refuse to extend grace and forgiveness to others. But what a blessing to know that whether we are mirroring the sins of the, the younger son or the older son, God knows our sins better than we do, and he will forgive us more completely than we can possibly imagine. And he will say to us, as he says to the older brother in verse 31, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Whether my sins or your sins today are more like the prodigal sons or more like the older sons, I am in need of the Father's forgiveness. You are in need of the Father's forgiveness. Just the same. And the good news of the gospel is that God the Father freely offers forgiveness and salvation to me and to you without a hint of reservation. Just like the Father does in the parable. But our salvation didn't come without a price. A price had to be paid for our sins, for our transgressions, for mine and for yours. And Jesus told this parable just a short time before he was going to go pay that price on the cross. And I want to close by focusing on a few words that the older son speaks to the father and then on the father's reply. And I want to suggest a way of understanding these words that might not be readily apparent, but that stood out to me as I reflected on, on this parable the older son says, look, these many years I have served you, I have never disobeyed your commands. In the mouth of the older son, these words are a vain lie. He had just disobeyed his father in that very moment. But there was one man, one man in all of history, who could speak those words truthfully to the father. Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Jesus. Jesus is the true older son. And what's the father's reply to the older son? You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. I wonder if those beautiful words of encouragement to us, and they are such words of encouragement to us, should also be understood as God's promise, God's encouragement to the true older son, to Jesus, who was soon to face 
the horrors of the cross. You know, Jesus' perfection is, is so far beyond my capacity to understand. It, it's, to, to understand what it meant for him to be fully God and fully man at the same time is one of the great mysteries of the faith. But there are certain times in the Gospels when it seems to me that Jesus' humanity is revealed to us more vividly than, than other times. And I wonder if this is one of them. J- Jesus tells the parable, as I said, not long before he's going to be arrested and crucified. And he knows that he will suffer unimaginable anguish as he pays the price for our sins on the cross. And he knows that his death is God's plan to redeem his lost children, his prodigal sons and daughters. Jesus also knows that he is the only one who can say to God, I never disobeyed your commands. Of all the people who ever lived, he is the least deserving of what he is about to suffer. But he knows he has to suffer it. But is Jesus like a, like a perfect robot that God sets in motion to, to achieve our salvation? No, he's a man. He's fully a man at the same time that he is fully God. And like any man would, he dreads the suffering that is before him. And we know from later in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus pleads with God to find another way. He prays so hard in the Garden of Gethsemane for God to spare him from the cross that Luke says his sweat became his blood. Jesus begs, Abba, Father, all things are possible with you. Take this cup from me. But your will be done, not mine. And does God answer his prayer? Perhaps the most passionate, most sincere, most beautiful prayer ever prayed by a man. Does God answer it? God gives Jesus nothing that he prays for. And by that unanswered prayer, God saves the world with an unanswered prayer. We often speak or sing God's promises to us. You know, hymns are written this way, where we speak God's word back to us as encouragement and to give us strength. And I think it may be that Jesus is doing the same thing at the end of the parable. Unbeknownst to everybody listening, except for God, Jesus, the perfect older son, says to the father, I never disobeyed your commands. Must you really kill the fattened calf for these sinners? Must I really endure this death? And God replies to Jesus, Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. So maybe when Jesus has the father in the parable say these words, these beautiful words to the older son, he isn't just giving us words of encouragement for our good. Maybe he's repeating a promise that God gave him long ago. A promise that Jesus needs to hear and to say for his strength and his encouragement to steal himself for the challenge that's coming. And these these may very well be the words that God spoke to Jesus before the foundation of the world, when only they knew the story that they were going to tell. And only they knew the terrible price that it would take 
to redeem the lost. Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. And so Jesus submitted to his Father's will. He truly never disobeyed God's commands. He went to the cross, and the true and perfect Son gave his life so that we prodigal children could be welcomed home to live with the Father forever and ever. What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul and for your soul. Isaiah 40, verse 8 says this, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we praise you and we thank you for your beautiful word. Thank you for sending Jesus to pay the price for our sins. Thank you for loving us unconditionally. Thank you for taking us back every time we stray. Help us to love others the way you love us. To forgive them the way you forgive us. To take them back the way you take us back. Be with us, Lord, now and always. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.